So, to start our message, I want to ask you, what do you think it takes to change the world? Nice, simple, light question to begin our message today. What do you think it takes to change the world? Think about any of the major issues that you might be aware of. Obviously, the situation in the Ukraine is a huge one that's on our radars at the moment. But think about global poverty. Think about the challenges of kids getting access to healthy education, particularly young women in lots of areas in the world. We think about what's going on with COVID and the challenges that we've faced around that over the last couple of years. What do you think it takes to be able to change the world and to fix those problems? I not about you, but whenever I think about that, I'm very guilty of defaulting across to what I absorb from a lot of movies. Now, I've talked before about how much I love superhero movies. So I love Superman. I love the Avengers movies. And so it's very easy for us to think, well, the solution to our problems is a superhero. If they would just come along and exert their power and their influence, they would be able to fix everything. If the right person would just step up with their power and influence, then the situation in the Ukraine would be resolved. If the right person would step up with power and influence, then we could solve global poverty. If the right person would step up with power and influence, we could solve education problems. And even, we've seen the tension that we've felt around this over the last couple of years, if the right person with the right wisdom with power and influence steps up, then maybe we can solve this COVID thing, or at least the way that we're supposed to handle it. We very easily tap into this mindset that it's all about power and influence, and that's what creates change in people's lives. Today we want to spend a a bit of time unpacking that, and whether that's actually what Jesus tells us, and particularly whether that's what we mean when we talk about this idea of seeing lives change. So hopefully you've got a copy of the teaching notes on your way in. You can uh, grab those and jot things down as we go through today's message. And uh, the passage we're going to be looking at is in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. So if you've got your Bible or your Bible app, uh, you can open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Today we're wrapping up our kickoff series. So over the last month we have talked about who we are as a church and what we're sensing that God's saying that we need to be focused on as we move into 2022. And so if you think back to the beginning of the series, we talked about that beautiful picture of planting and watering and recognising that we have a role to play in planting seeds and doing the watering that God wants us to do, but ultimately God's the one who does the growing in our lives. And really that's a beautiful picture of exactly what we're talking about when we say that we want to be a Jesus-centred spiritual family who are passionate about seeing lives change. Our focus is on sprinkling Jesus-centred seeds wherever we can to be able to say, how do we spread the news about Jesus around? How do we sprinkle those seeds in places where there are opportunities for them to take root? But we recognise that in order for them to grow, there needs to be some watering that goes on. They need to be in the right environment. And so we talked about what spiritual family looks like. And we said that we believe when there is an environment that's created that's about authenticity, about acceptance, about encouragement and about support, that gives those seeds that are centred on Jesus the greatest chance to be able to grow. And then today we're going to wrap things up by talking about the reality that we believe that that all of those two things, if you put them together, mean that people's lives are changed. And that's very intentional language, that we don't say that we change people's lives, but we believe that when we centre on Jesus in the right environment, God is able to transform people's lives. And we want to unpack what that looks for. We recognise that that's God's heart for us. As individuals, God wants to transform us and to change our lives. Now, it's important to name that it doesn't mean that God doesn't like us 
as we are. Sometimes we can fall into the trap of thinking, well, transformation means that God's not really that pleased with us, and if we could just get our act together, then God might actually like us. We recognise that God loves us passionately as we are right now. That is absolutely true. But it's been said that God loves us too much to leave us where we are because God knows the best version of who he created us to be. And when we talk about transformation, that's what we're saying, is allowing that best version of ourselves that God wired us to be able to come out. But this is also true for us as a church, that we believe as a church family, God loves us and is pleased with the things that we're doing, but wants us to be the best version of a church that we can be. And a big part of the reason for that is because God also is passionate about changing the lives of the people around us, the people in our communities, the people that we're connected with. God's heart is to see transformation happen, and he uses us to be some of the people who plant the seeds and create the environment for that transformation to occur. But what does that look like? What does life change look like? What does transformation look like? We're going to look at a fascinating passage that really challenges us about some of our notions of it. So a little bit of a recap. In chapter 11, and I encourage you to have a read of this during the week, in chapter 11, Paul takes a bit of time to address what we talked about a few weeks ago, the challenges that he was facing with the church in Corinth, that they had some leaders who had stepped in, who were false teachers, who were dragging people away from the message of Jesus and really getting them off, of, off track. And so Paul takes some time to outline his resume because part of what those leaders were challenging was whether Paul was really a legit guy or not. And so Paul says, well, if you want to know whether I've got the goods, let's just take some time to walk through my resume, shall we? Talks about his qualifications. He talks about his background. He talks about his experiences and the things that he's been through. But if you read that passage, It's so interesting because we can see this internal battle that Paul is struggling with as he says those things. He's struggling with the reality of talking himself up and that coming across as looking foolish. He just consistently goes off on these sidetracks. I hope this doesn't sound like I'm being foolish. I hope this doesn't look like I'm foolish. These sound like foolish words. Over and over he comes back to that. And we can sense the tension that he's got that he really can't win. If he doesn't say anything, then these other leaders drag these people away into something that's not terribly helpful. But if he talks himself up and says, look at how great I am, you should be totally following me, that doesn't come across as fantastic either. Then we get into the first part of chapter 12, which is a little bit confusing because Paul talks about this man who had a vision It's a bit strange why he seems to kind of throw this in. And most commentators would say the reason why it's a bit weird and why it doesn't really feel like it fits is because actually that was Paul talking about himself, but talking about himself in the third person, that he had this really, really amazing vision where he understood some things about God in a really powerful way. And maybe he didn't want to talk about those things because it was a little bit too personal and a little bit too powerful for him. There's also an understanding that he didn't, again, want to talk himself up too much. And so he says, there was this man who had this vision. But after outlining all of the reasons why the Corinthians should trust him and listen to him, he says these very, very interesting words. In verse 7 he says, So to keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. Paul says, in order to stop me going down that road of it's all about me and look how great I am, to make sure that I don't focus on my resume or my experience and my qualifications, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me 
and keep me from becoming proud. Now, this is one of the biggest unsolved mysteries in the history of the church. For hundreds and hundreds of years, the church has wrestled with what's this thorn that Paul had? Was it a physical ailment? So was it like a literal thorn that just got stuck somewhere there for him? Was it something that was wrong with his feet? Something that was wrong with his legs? People have speculated it might have been something that was wrong with his eyesight. So it could have been a physical ailment. But other people have speculated that it may have actually been a nagging doubt that he had. It could have been an intellectual challenge that he had where he just had this question that he couldn't shake. He couldn't find the answer to it and he just couldn't let it go and it was like a thorn that drove him mad. Other people have said maybe it was a persistent temptation, some temptation that he was faced with over and over and over again that kept dragging him away from what Jesus' best was. And other people have said it may have been just someone who was really, really irritating. And that's how we've often talked about and adopted this language, a thorn in my flesh, is to talk about someone who just drives you nuts. Every time you see them, you're like, oh, here we go again. That Paul had one of those people in his life who just drove him crazy. We don't know what this thorn was and we believe that if we were supposed to know exactly what it was and that that was the important point that Paul was making, then he would have been more clear. But this is a beautiful challenge to us to recognise that it's so easy for us also to drift into a sense of pride and to make things all about ourselves. Think about our finances. If we get in a healthy place financially, we can very easily make that about ourselves. It's because I saved hard enough. It's because I invested wisely. It's because I made good decisions with my money. I didn't waste any of my money. I was very responsible with it. If we think about our relationships, well, my relationships are in a healthy place because I've taken the time to invest in those relationships. I've taken the time to do the right thing in those relationships. I've made it a priority. I've made sure that I've always thought about the other person and put them first in our relationship. In a work context, I got that promotion or I got that opportunity because I worked hard or because of my resume, because I did the right thing, because I sacrificed and showed there was a really, really great employee. At the end of the day, all of those things end up being about us. These are all the things that I've done that have meant that I'm in this position. Now, none of those things are bad things. It's really, really good for us to be responsible with our finances. It's really good for us to invest in relationships. It's really good for us to give our best in a work or volunteer context. The same challenge can be true in our spiritual journey as well. God is blessing me because I make it a priority to come here on Sundays. God's blessing me because I'm making it a priority to read the Bible on a regular basis, to pray on a regular basis, to sacrificially give. And so that's why God's doing all these good things. Now, again, there's nothing wrong with any of those. Those are all excellent habits for us to have. But if our mindset drifts to it's all about me, I've done all these things and therefore that's why God is doing these good things to me or for me, We've missed the whole point. We forget that at the end of the day, everything is all about God and his goodness and what he's done for us. We don't start with ourselves. We start with God. And so sometimes God will allow us to go through difficult situations that help us to refocus or to reassess or to reflect or to recognise maybe it's not so much all about me as much as I thought that it was. Now, it's important to name that that doesn't mean that we necessarily have to be happy about it, though. Paul says in verse 8, three different times I begged the Lord to take this thorn away. 
Now again, if we go back to the beginning of chapter 12, Paul talks about this vision happening 14 years ago. And so the understanding behind the scenes there is that this is something that's been a part of Paul's life for 14 years. And he says, three times I begged the Lord to take it away from me. Just the pain, the agony, the frustration. God, I can't do this anymore. Now, we would believe that Paul probably prayed about it more than three times in 14 years, but Paul just got to the edge of not being able to handle it anymore at least three times, where he said, God, I can't do this anymore. Would you please, please act and do something about that? I wonder if you've ever had that situation in your life where you've gotten to a point where you've said, God, I don't think I can do this anymore. It could be related to a health issue. God, I can't stand the pain any longer. I don't know how much longer I can keep functioning this way where things aren't the way that I want them to be. It could be being caught in the middle of a family struggle or a relationship struggle where you feel like you're being torn in two directions as you try to mediate some form of conflict. God, I don't know if I can handle this anymore. I don't know how much longer I can keep going. It could be someone who irritates and niggles you, someone who frustrates you, someone at work, at uni, at school, someone who's in your world who just drives you nuts. God, I don't know if I can face this person again. Please, would you take it away? Would you fix it? So Paul cries out to God and he says, God, I'm done. Like I'm at the end of my rope. But God's response is some of the most powerful words that we have in the Bible. God responds to Paul and says, My grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. My grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. Now, this word grace is a word that we often use around the place, and there's lots of different definitions of it, but I found this one that I thought was unbelievably helpful this week. The grace is the inexhaustible supply of God's goodness that we cannot earn and do not deserve, but that keeps on coming. Grace is the inexhaustible supply of God's goodness that we can't earn, that we don't deserve, but it keeps on coming. God's reply to Paul is to say, my inexhaustible goodness is all that you really need in your life. But then he also says, my power works best when you're feeling weak. This, to me, is the heart of transformation. This is what really seeing a life change looks like. It's not about my power and my influence. It's not about me getting everything together. It's not about me mastering everything. It's not when I know everything. It's another reminder of the upside-down nature of God's kingdom, of God's way of life. When we're at our weakest, God is at his strongest. When we stop striving, God jumps in and starts driving. When we say, I can't do this anymore, God, God says, finally, because now I can. It's staggering when we stop and think about the implications of that and how much different it is to how we so often respond when we're in difficult situations. But it is important to note how Paul hears these incredible words. Paul begs for God to take this thorn away, and then what does he do? He stops and he listens. He stops and he waits. 
I don't know about you, but I'm really challenged about that because so often when I face difficulties in my life, I pray about them, sure, but then I move on to the next prayer point. Or I say, okay, done that, now on to the next thing on my to-do list. Up and go and just trust that God's going to solve the problem for me. How often when I'm facing a difficult situation, do I pray, lay it before God, but then actually stop and listen and wait? What is God's perspective on this? What does God actually want to say to me in this moment? Because this, for Paul, was completely transformative for him. I'm not actually going to take this thorn away from you, but I want you to remember these two things. The inexhaustible supply of my goodness is all you need. And when you're at your weakest, that's when I'm at my strongest. I wonder how much would change if that's the default that we had when we faced struggles in our lives. When challenges came our way, if we stopped and said, the inexhaustible goodness of God is really all that I need in my life. And when I'm weakest, God's strongest. Now, it's important to name that this doesn't mean that we intentionally seek out weakness. It doesn't mean that we intentionally give up on things, that we just let things slide because, well, more room for God to work, I guess, if I mess things up. Not at all. And certainly that's where we're reminded about who Paul is, that that's not the picture we have of Paul at all, where he just kind of let things slide and was like, oh, well, who cares? I'll just give up and then God can do more. But it is that question about ultimately who's in control for us, who our sense of focus is on. Is the focus on me and what I can do, or is my focus on God and what he can do? This was so transformative for Paul that then he ends up saying, so now I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults, the hardships, the persecutions and the troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. Paul says, I'm happy to admit I don't have it all together. I'm happy to admit that it's not all about me. It's not about me being strong enough, talented enough, gifted enough. It's all about Jesus. It's all about what Jesus is able to do. I don't know about you, but that really challenges me, though, to say, uh, I don't know about this word pleasure. I don't know about taking pleasure in my weaknesses, pleasure in insults, hardships, persecution, troubles. I don't know how often I use the word pleasure when I encounter those sorts of things in my life. And particularly because our culture tells us the exact opposite of that. That our lives are supposed to be about becoming more and more comfortable. That if you exert your power and influence, if you do all the right things, then your life's going to get better and better. Everything's going to become easier, everything's going to become more comfortable, and life's going to be absolutely great. So when we encounter difficulties, our cultural response is, that's not fair, that's not the way that it's supposed to be. What have I done wrong? I mustn't have exerted my power and my influence. When I experience health challenges, when I experience financial challenges, when I experience relationship struggles, when I don't get the job that I was hoping that I was going to get, when I can't go on the holiday that I wanted to go on, when I can't buy the car that I want because there's not enough computer chips in the world, what's my response? Frustration. Seriously? What's wrong that I'm not being able to have the things that I want? Paul really pushes back on that and challenges that. But I'm also challenged about what our response is as a church to the things that Paul is talking about. 
When we face persecution, insults, hardships and troubles as a church, what's our response to those things too? Because so often, if we're honest, our response ends up being the same. It's not fair. How come this is happening to us? We shouldn't have to go through this. It's important for us to fight back to exert our power and our influence. Paul reminds us that the challenge is when we face those things, our responsibility is to come back to Jesus, to get perspective, to ask who we really trust, where our strength really comes from. Is the inexhaustible supply of God's goodness enough for us? Do we recognise that God's actually able to work better through us when we feel weak? But I'm also really challenged too about the perspective of what persecution and trouble and suffering looks like. Particularly for us in the West, when I compare what is happening in the Ukraine and the update that Rob gave us last week about his friend that's over there in the midst of what's happening. The people who are following Jesus, our brothers and sisters around the world who literally have to make life and death decisions about whether they'll follow Jesus. Where persecution is not inconvenience, it's a very real reality, the same as it was for Paul. I'm challenged about what my perspective is about suffering and the ways in which I respond to that. Our heart as a church is that we want to see transformation in people's lives. And this is why we struggle with some of this a little bit, because we genuinely want to see people's lives change. We want people to experience the best that God has for them. We want people to see their lives change by what God and only God can do. We want to see transformation, not just in our lives, not just in our church, but in our community. We all have a heart for our neighbours and our friends, the people in our workplaces, people that we connect with at uni, people in our extended families. We desperately want to see their lives changed. But as I think about that as we head into another year and all of the opportunities that are in front of us, sometimes I'll admit I feel a little bit hopeless. I feel a little bit overwhelmed about the enormity of that task. How can anything change? How can people discover Jesus? How can we help people to experience all that God's got for them? As I think about those connections that we talked about this morning, a connection with Sparkling Diamonds Netball Club, with the people who come here for emergency relief, the families who are a part of Playgroup, the guys who go to Men's Shed, the people who are part of our craft group. As you think about the people that you're connected with, do you ever feel that sense of just being overwhelmed, feeling a little bit hopeless? How is this ever going to change? What I've wrestled with this year is that part of the reason why I struggle with that is because I make it all about me, all about my power and my influence, my strategies. What am I able to achieve? What am I able to do? And these words that Paul gives us this morning cut right through all of that. The inexhaustible supply of God's goodness is all that we need. And his power works best in weakness. When we feel hopeless, when we feel overwhelmed, that's the very opportunity where God can do the most amount of work. So we don't give up. We don't surrender. We don't throw our hands in the air and say it's all too hard. We remind ourselves what our starting point is. It's all about Jesus and what he's done and relying on his goodness and his power. 
So I want to give us an opportunity to be able to reflect on that. As we move into this year, whose power and strength am I relying on? Whose power and strength are we relying on? I'm going to give you some time to be able to pause. You can jot some thoughts down. You can have a conversation with the person next to you. But as we head into this year, whose power and strength are you relying on? We'll come back and pray and transition across the communion. Let's pray. Jesus, we confess that so often we make things about ourselves. It's so easy for us to focus on what we can do and what we have done and what we should do. And it is really hard for us at times to not feel overwhelmed about the enormity of the things that we're facing in our world and in our community. As we think about things that are happening at a global scale and as we think about being able to be a church that can have an impact on the neighbourhoods around us, when we think about what we can do, there is a level of struggle that kicks in. We thank you for that because it means that it reminds us that it's not about us. That at the end of the day, your challenge for us is simply to focus on these two things the inexhaustible supply of your goodness. And whether we do believe that what you have is actually enough for us, regardless of what's going on in our lives, regardless of what we're struggling with, whether we genuinely believe that your goodness, the way that you feel about us, is enough. And this incredible upside-down challenge, that in those moments when we feel the weakest, you 
are your strongest. Thank you that when we stop, when we surrender, when we open our hands, when we stop striving, that's the very moment where you say, at last, now I can do what only I can do. And so we pray that as we move into this year, that you would continue to challenge, about, uh, challenge us about that as individuals and as a church together, that you would continue to remind us of your amazing goodness to us, all of the ways in which you are so faithful to us, but that you would also challenge us about what it looks like to simply surrender to you and to allow you to do the work through us that only you can do. You know that our heart's desire is to see people's lives changed, to see people's lives transformed, to see our community changed and transformed so that it resembles you. As we move into this year, help us to rely on your strength, your power and your goodness to see more and more of that happen. In your name we pray. Amen.